The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, any place. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. This is episode three of The Happiness Formula. I'm Mike Coscarelli. We hope you're enjoying the series and sharing it with all your friends, or, at the least, sharing some tidbits of your newfound wisdom. Here's something else that you might not know about our friend Barry. He actually wrote the book on wisdom. That's right. He called it Practical Wisdom, the right way to do the right thing. In his book, he says that practical wisdom is this master virtue. And in this episode, he tells us what wisdom is and why it should matter to all of us who are in the pursuit of meaning and happiness. Over the next few episodes, Barry is going to talk about what the great philosophers of the world can teach us about this. I'll let Barry take it from here. I wrote a book about practical wisdom with a colleague some years ago. And the reason why I find understanding wisdom so important in connection with the general topic of this course is that I think that in order to do work that is good, that is satisfying, it needs to be work that allows you to work wisely. And in order to foster and maintain relations with friends and family, that are satisfying, you need to be wise in the way in which you interact with friends and family. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk first about what practical wisdom is in general terms, and then we're going to talk about how it's manifested in the work people do and how it's manifested in the relationships they have with other people. In my view, 
America is broken. None of the key institutions that we depend on work the way they should. Almost everyone will agree that our schools are failing us. Our healthcare system is going broke. The legal system increasingly offers justice for a fee. Political system is almost completely paralyzed. So things are broken. Everyone acknowledges this pretty much. And we're all wringing our hands trying to figure out what went wrong and how to fix it. And it isn't only the recipients of services from the legal profession, from the medical profession, from teachers, and from bankers. It isn't just the recipients of those services who are unhappy. The practitioners are unhappy too. At the moment, doctors and lawyers are engaged in a fight to determine which profession produces the greatest unhappiness, the greatest dropout, the greatest drug abuse. Lawyers don't like being lawyers. Doctors don't like being doctors. Something is wrong. And the first thing we look to when a system breaks is how do we create rules that will prevent these failures from happening in the future? How do we make doctors treat their patients better? How do we make teachers teach their students better? What should we require them to do? The second thing we look to, in addition to rules, is incentives. Is there some way we can make it worth their while for doctors to practice medicine well, for teachers to teach well? Rules are sticks, incentives are carrots, and we try to fix broken systems with some combination of carrots and sticks that will make them work better. I think this is a big mistake. Yes, there need to be rules. And yes, sometimes there need to be incentives, but we also need something else. And that something else is almost never part of the public discussion. That something else is what Aristotle called virtue, or to use a less old-fashioned term, character. We need people who do the right thing as doctors or lawyers or teachers, who do the right thing because it's the right thing. What they want to do is the right thing. And the particular virtue that we need more than any other is the virtue of practical wisdom. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at what practical wisdom is, why we need it in our work life, why we need it in our personal lives, how it's being threatened, and how we can respond to the threat. And the conclusion that all of this is leading to is that wise people are happy people. That in general, the secret to happiness is wisdom. That's the argument I'm going to try to make. But this is a view of where we're heading. So let's talk about wisdom first by, by uh, going through a couple of examples. The first example comes from an oncologist named Jerome Groupman, and he wrote an article in the New Yorker magazine some years ago uh, called You're Going to Die. 
he describes the case of Maxine, a 30-year-old woman who discovered a little lump in her breast. Tests revealed that this lump is malignant, that the cancer has already spread to her spine and her liver. Now, she sits across the desk from him, accompanied by her parents and her fiancé, and Groupman, Dr. Groupman, has to tell her that in all likelihood, she will be dead within two years. How should this conversation go? On the one hand, the canons of medical ethics, not to mention a more, sort of more general principles that demand that we treat people with respect, tell Groupman that he has to tell her the truth. But on the other hand, there are lots of ways to tell the truth, and there are lots of different truths. And the approach that he takes to this conversation may determine whether this woman's last months of life are filled with hopelessness and misery, or whether she'll have the strength to go through the rigorous treatments ahead of her with some measure of optimism. So Groupman begins the conversation by reviewing the facts, the size and location of the original tumor, the evidence of the spread. But before complete hopelessness sets in, he quickly says that the cancer should be treated aggressively. You stand a strong chance of remission, he says. Now his patient's mother responds with, oh, so that means she'll be okay. And Groupman immediately realizes that he has to backtrack a little. He has to make it clear that remission isn't a cure. Treatment may make the current metastatic deposits go away, but they will almost certainly come back in other places. Treatment is palliative. But what does palliative mean? Groupman goes on. We can knock out the cancer with drugs. Your bones and liver can heal. You can go back to living a normal life. And when, does he say when or if? He does say when, and when the cancer returns, we'll work to knock it down. Does he say knock it down or knock it out? Think about what a big difference the choice of word is. Knock it down means palliative, knock it out means curative. And when the cancer returns, we'll work to knock it down again. Meanwhile, new treatments may emerge from research that are far more effective than our current ones. So at the very least, we're buying time. Now what? In some sense, he's presented the best case, and everyone's eyes are welling with tears. But he has to present the worst case also. He has to let Maxine know that a point may be reached at which treatments are no longer effective. He has to say this both because he owes it to his patient to be honest and because she will likely face decisions about when to stop treatment that she should be thinking about while she is still well enough to think about this coherently. So Groupman presents the worst case also. And his patient, Maxine, seems satisfied. She doesn't seem to want to know anymore. He concludes by saying, we need to plan for the best while acknowledging the worst. 
And all the while that he's having this painful conversation, he realizes that it isn't just what he says that matters, but how he says it. If he hesitates too long before answering a bleak question, no matter how encouraging he is, they'll think he's holding something back. If he's too upbeat, they'll leave the office with unrealistic hopes. For groupmen to pull this off, both the form and the content of what he says have to be just right. And the question is, what is it that enables doctors to have such difficult conversations and to have them well? And where do they learn to have these difficult conversations? As we'll see, they certainly don't learn it in medical school. Wow. Personally, I had never thought about how unprepared we are to deal with these tricky situations at work or in life. Right now, it's time for a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll hear more real-life examples of how decision-making, like when to tell the truth, can get... complicated. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. 
My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me give you another example. This is about a judge named Lois Forer, who was a judge in Philadelphia criminal court. And she wrote about the case of a young man named Michael. He was a typical offender, young, male, black, high school dropout without a job. The charge was an insignificant holdup that was so trivial that it occasioned no comment from the press. And the trial itself was totally run of the mill. A year before, Michael, while brandishing a toy gun, held up a taxi and took $50 from the driver and the passenger, harming neither of them. It was his first offense. Although he had dropped out of school to marry his pregnant girlfriend, Michael later obtained a high school equivalency diploma. He'd been steadily employed, earning enough to send his daughter to a parochial school, which was a considerable sacrifice for him and his wife. Shortly before the holdup, Michael had lost his job. This made him despondent, despondent that he wouldn't be able to support his family. So he went out on a Saturday night, had a little too much to drink, and he robbed a taxi. So Forer, Lois Forer writes, there was no doubt that Michael was guilty, but the penalty posed problems. The prosecutor wanted a five-year sentence for armed robbery. Forer turned to the Pennsylvania sentencing guidelines, a state statute that's designed to give similar sentences to offenders who commit similar crimes, and the sentencing guidelines described as a minimum sentence, two years, 24 months. Here's what she says. I decided to deviate from the guidelines, sentencing Michael to 11 and a half months in the county jail and permitting him to work outside of the prison during the day so he could continue to support his family. My rationale for this lesser penalty which I outlined in a lengthy opinion, was that it was a first offense and no one was harmed and he acted under the pressures of unemployment and need and he seemed to be truly contrite. He had never committed a violent act and he posed no danger to the public. A sentence of close to a year seemed adequate to convince Michael of the seriousness of his crime. And so Michael served this 11 and a half months holding down his job all the while. And when it was over, he was successfully reunited with his family. How do judges learn to make such judgments? And to foreshadow, there is more to this story that we'll get to later on, because it turns out the prosecutor appealed the sentence as being too lenient. One more example to show that this isn't just about professionals. Research was done on the work of janitors at an academic 
hospital in the Midwest. Janitors have a long list of duties. I'll just go through a few of them. Shampoo, carpeting, and upholstery. Operate mechanical cleaning and scrubbing equipment. Strip and wax floors. Maintain the entrance area by sweeping, salting, and shoveling snow as required. Clean the grounds in the area by performing such duties as picking up paper or trash around buildings. Unstop toilets, urinals, and sink drains without dismantling them. Wet mop the floors and staircases. Collect and dispose of soiled linen. Operate vacuum cleaning equipment. Clean and wax furniture. Clean mirrors. Clean toilet rooms and fixtures. Stock restroom supplies. Dust Venetian blinds. Clean patient bedside equipment. Make beds. Change linen. Collect and transport waste materials. Report items that are in need of repair, sweep and dust the floors and stairways, replace burnt out light bulbs. You get the idea. Long, long list of duties. Not a single one of these duties even mentions another human being. So these hospital janitors could be janitors in an office building just as well as janitors in a hospital, and they'd basically be doing the same thing. So that's the job of the janitor. But while there were some janitors who basically did just that job, they'd come in, they'd punch a clock, they'd go through their list, they'd punch out and they'd go home. There were other janitors who thought that this set of duties was only part of their job and not the most important part. So one janitor being interviewed says, You know, sometimes I might start waxing a floor and a patient comes out of his room and he wants to walk up and down the hall. He wants to get exercise because it'll help him recover. As soon as I get ready, he'll start walking so I don't bother him. I just wait because I know I can't tell him to go sit down. They need to build themselves up. And that's what I'll tell my supervisor. Couldn't finish waxing the floor because of the patients. This is not part of the this janitor's job description, but she appreciates that she works in a hospital and the mission of the hospital is to cure disease and ease suffering. And the way she can contribute to the mission of the hospital in this case is by not washing the floor and instead giving the patient the opportunity to build up his strength. Another example, this is a janitor talking about the very, very concerned family members of seriously ill patients. I treat them with respect. A lot of times when I go into the visitor's lounge, you know, to clean it, and I have to ask them, is it okay if I clean? And sometimes I don't bother because a lot of times when I go in to clean, they'll be asleep. So, but you know, the supervisors, my supervisor has told me I'm supposed to do this and I'm supposed to do that, but I prefer not to. So sometimes I have to bite the bullet. I try to work with the visitors because I know about some of the things they're going through with their relatives. So her job is to clean the visitor's lounge. And of course, that is part of her job. But she thinks another part of her job is to provide as much comfort and support to concerned relatives of very sick people as she possibly can. And that's nowhere in her job description. So 
janitors like these, and this is not all janitors, they do other things. They change the paintings in patients' rooms, patients who've been in the hospital for a long time. They change the paintings so that the patients will feel like maybe some progress is being made. They help nurses turn very big patients that the nurses can't manage on their own to prevent bed sores. None of this is in their job description. And that's because what these janitors think their job is, is to do whatever is necessary to enable the hospital to successfully achieve its mission of curing disease and easing suffering. And what they tell you is not only is this the most important part of their work, but it's, it's work that requires a great deal of experience and skill, knowing how to interact with patients, how to interact with patients' families, how to help nurses, uh, when to help nurses, all of that takes experience. And it's the part of their job that gives them the greatest satisfaction. So these are examples. How does a doctor give a patient bad news? How does a judge decide on a sentence that deviates from the standards? And how does a janitor, hospital janitor do their job? All of these uh, activities require judgment. All of these activities require wisdom. And to do the job well requires not following rules, but knowing when, what the limits to rules are and knowing when to deviate from those rules. The judge, judge four, and the janitors deviated from the rules. And Jerome Groupman realized that the rule, be honest, didn't begin to tell him how to talk to his patient. They all appreciated that rules take you only so far. And many of our most common everyday decisions, whether at work or elsewhere, can't be decided by rules, even good rules. Here's a good rule. Be honest. I think almost everyone would agree that it's a virtue to tell the truth. It's a virtue to be honest and that we should try insofar as we can to be honest with everyone we interact with. Is it a rule that has no exceptions? When I uh, talk about this, in the, when I taught an undergraduate class on this subject, the example I gave to provoke students to discuss is this. Imagine that you have a friend who's getting dressed to go to a wedding. Not the bride, but she's getting all dressed up to go to a wedding. She calls you and she says, I just got into the gown that I'm wearing to the wedding. I'd like you to come over and tell me how you think I look. And so being a good friend, you go over, knock on the door. She opens the door in this gown she's wearing, does a little pirouette and says, how do I look? What you think is not so good. The question is, what do you say? Do you tell your friend the truth? When we raise this with our students, they think, of course you tell the truth. 
What kind of a friendship is it if, if it's not based on honesty? Truth-telling is an essential ingredient of friendship. And they think it's just obvious that you tell the truth, or at least some of them do. Some of them think, no, just tell her she looks good and avoid an unpleasant moment. Um, what we try to convince them is that the right answer to the question, should I tell the truth, is it depends. It depends on what, you ask. Well, does she have an alternative? If you tell her she doesn't look good in this dress, what's plan B? If there is no plan B, there's not much point in telling her. That's one question. The second question is, if you tell her she doesn't look good and she clearly thinks she does look good, what is this going to do to her sense of her ability to judge on her own how she looks in the future? Can I ever trust my own judgment again about how I look before I go out of the house? What effect is that going to have on this friend of yours in the future? Some friends can take it. They got lots of self-confidence. Other friends may be crushed. And so you need to know your friend. You need to know your friend's circumstances. You need to know your friend's character in order to know whether this is an occasion. Even though telling the truth is a good rule, you need to know whether this is an occasion where it's a rule that you should be following. And the answer is often yes, but sometimes no. And why is that? Well, because there's another rule that we probably would think is a good rule. Be kind. Be kind to other people. It's hard to quarrel with that rule. But you're now in a situation where being kind pushes you in one direction. Being honest pushes you in a different direction. And you have to decide which of these two directions is the one that's most important to this person at this moment. And making that decision requires wisdom. So despite how good a rule it is to be honest, it is a rule that sometimes has exceptions. Join us next time on The Happiness Formula when we'll be discussing why wisdom is a bit like jazz, 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 jazz. It's a bit like jazz. Okay, see you then. The Happiness Formula from One Day University is a production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app and check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? 
I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 